welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have therapist Betsy Zemke join us for a conversation about navigating the flux of change. Together, we talk about trauma recovery with the pandemic, bird calling your community, and finding contentment within an abundance of choice. Y'all, listening to this episode, Betsy just has such a good energy about her. It is calming and peaceful as we explore all the fun twists and turns of our conversation around identity, sexuality, gender, and all the fun things. So I think y'all are really going to enjoy today's episode, and I hope you tune in. Also, it is the third Wednesday of the month, so I am reading one of your Patreon letters, and let's dive in here. We have this letter from Carolyn in California, who uses she, her pronouns. She writes, Dear Nicole, Thank you for making this podcast. I have learned so much from you and the guests on the show. Thank you for all that you do. I've been struggling with this for a while and was hoping you might have some perspective. I've been with my partner, let's call him Nick, for the last three years now. I adore him and our relationship. But I feel conflicted because I also feel like I might be interested in women. I watch movies or see women in real life and feel an attraction to their beauty. I don't want to leave my partner, but I also feel like I can't really call myself gay and know if that's right for me without actually trying it out. Can I even call myself gay? I appreciate any perspective you might have on navigating this. Oh, Carolyn, thank you, thank you, thank you for opening up about your experience and being vulnerable and sharing this with the community. I am really excited to dive into this letter and... I think short answer I just also want to say is yes. Yes, you can be gay even without having to do any performative action. I just want to shout that high from the mountaintops, okay? We are going to dive into this letter, but if that identity and label feels right to you, then that is the label that is right for you. So I will be answering this question over on the Patreon account with a link below if you want to check it out. And if you feel like you have the finances to support the podcast, I would really appreciate it. It takes a ton of labor to put out this free content every week. And so I really appreciate the people that have it within their budget to be able to support this podcast and the larger movement that we are doing by donating 50% of all the Patreon pledges each month to a different mutual aid to make the change that we've been talking about on this podcast. So, and if donating right now is not within your budget, I love you. You are welcome here. This content is also for you. I'm just calling out to the people out there that have the resources, that enjoy the show, and want to support the sustainability of the podcast. I really appreciate you and hope to connect with all of y'all further on Patreon. Now, let's dive into today's episode with Betsy. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Is there anything specifically that you want to talk about that's kind of on your heart that you'd like to talk about in this space? I would love to talk about my work in therapy because I am always down to talk about my work in therapy. Let's talk Um, about it. I think I don't, I think specifically I don't have anything I don't want to talk about. So, and if I do, if we trip over one of those, I would let you know. Yep. And trust your editing skills. Of course. Of course. Yes, of course. So what is it about your therapy that you feel like is on your heart right now? One of the things that's interesting to me is like watching people navigate the beginning of the end of the pandemic Mm -hmm. in a way that is really individual and to have to be in a space where some people feel like they're done and feel like either they are going back to normal or they should go be going back to normal and then other people who are still in a dead middle of it Mm. Um, and one of the things that I really like about doing work as a therapist is that I feel like in some ways it's important for me to to really know my client base and that in some ways clients have the ability to say things to each other in a way that is kind of filtered through me and mediated by Mm. me and doing work in the middle of lockdown, it felt like I didn't have all of the answers, but of all of the clients that I was talking to, I would take little bits of information from over here and little bits of information from over there and say like, other people have also had this experience. Mm. And some people say they do this and some people say they do that. And and that was really powerful. And just in the last six or eight months, I feel like that is gone. (laughs) And everybody is really navigating stuff that we haven't had to do for a couple of years, but also much more individual journeys. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So like maybe earlier in the pandemic, you were able to play this role because of your job as a therapist where you kind of heard the inner, very intimate navigation of other people's lives in the pandemic that then when you heard in your therapy space, you could reflect back that this is kind of a normal experience, right? Other people are going through it like this and this is kind of what they're doing. And so in that you're providing, yeah, that normalcy of this common shared experience, but it seems like you're saying now that the pandemic is ending, there are so many different like unique ways people are responding to this that you don't feel like you have that same ability to say, oh, that's that's normal. Is that what I'm kind of getting? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And that this is trauma recovery and mm-hmm. it's messy and it's nonlinear and people will say, I was doing great and Ooh, I yeah. had everything together and now it's gone. So that must mm-hmm. be me. And it is both really helpful for me to say, no, that's not you. That's the trauma event. Mm-hmm. But also it feels a lot easier if they can fix themselves. If I'm like, oh, just just go do this thing. Just go be mindful for 10 more minutes a day and this will be fine. Yeah. And the truth is it's not. This is a very messy stage of healing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that desire as a therapist to like almost like give the magic pill that's going to solve this, you know, like, yeah, just go meditate for 10 minutes and it's going to be okay. Because at the end of the day, that's what, you know, you want to provide that healing, that love, that space. And yet at the same time with trauma doesn't make – there is no magic pill that just heal, heals trauma. Right. Yeah. And the way we've set up therapy is such a medical model that it makes sense that when you're not feeling good, you go see a professional, they prescribe a thing, you perform it, mm. easy peasy. And uh, and it's a little heartbreaking to be telling people over and over and over, that's not the case. You might just yeah. feel bad right now. Yeah. Yeah. That probably weighs on you as a therapist, right? To not be able to provide that healing. But in doing so, you are, right? In doing so, you are. But it's just That's not hope. That, right? Like, exactly. <laughs> that, like, yes, this is the normal experience, which is trauma and grief and not, you know, trying to just, like, sweep that under the rug. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, what more of it is sitting with you that you wanted to bring it up in this space? Is it is it just the – this feeling of like, I don't know how to make everyone feel okay about this or just like your excitement about the novel ways people are going, like what is sticking with you? Mm -hmm. It is really exciting Mm. to see that people are recovering. People are healing in ways that are surprising to me. Like a lot of people are are really doing surprisingly well. They are taking a lot of big steps, a lot of really brave steps in their life. And and it's still just so hard. We have had for a couple of years a steady stream of reminders that this is not normal. And people are kind of picking up those expectations of normalcy again. And living up to them or not living up to them. Because none of us are normal. Mm-hmm. And it is really helpful for me when I can get across the message that like that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Those brave moves, could you say more about what people are doing, what people are taking that you find, you know, that yeah, you look up to and see as brave, beautiful movements of humanity? I'd love to hear. Oh gosh. We're breaking habits. Mm. All of us are that worked for us for a while and have stopped working. But it's hard to really know what's helpful and what's not helpful until mm-hmm. you start trying things. So yeah. for some people, it looks very much like a planful move towards wellness. And then for some people, I think it looks to them like they're flailing around. Mm. Yeah, like trying to tread water. Yeah, it's um, it's easiest for me to think about in my own life that I very much had a had a set of crisis moments. And if I look back on it with the benefit of five or 10 years experience, I'm like, oh, first I solved this thing and then I solved this thing. And in the middle of it, it was just like chaos Mm. and it was so uncomfortable and it was so bad and everything was saying like, stop, go back to the routine. Mm. And now I look back later, I'm like, that was fine. Yeah. That was a really good idea. That was planful. Mm-hmm. There was no plan. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, you look back and you see it, but in the moment you're like, what the hell is happening to my life and what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think you'd be willing to share a little bit more about your personal journey in the context of how where that story lies? Yeah, sure. When I was in my early mid-30s, 
I had some kind of interesting medical issues that weren't life-threatening, but also weren't going away. Mm -hmm. And also I was dealing with a, a career that I had kind of fallen into accidentally and it had been working well enough and also my long-term relationship that I was in at the time was really like in a in a period of stasis that hadn't become unmanageable yet but neither of us were really able to grow and talk to each other so I had these three big areas of my life that were not on fire but also not great Mm -hmm. and in trying to figure out what to do with that I was like frozen by all of them Mm -hmm. and ultimately I had to go change each one individually and some parts of that went well and some parts of it really didn't and I wouldn't recommend doing it again Mm -hmm. Um, but it was just that knowledge like I have these I have these problems and they're ganging up on me like they're all coming back at me at once that is the thing that I most remember when Mm -hmm. clients describe to me like I've just got if everything else would just stop and I could focus on this one thing maybe I would be okay but it's not just my work it's also my personal life it's also my health it's also my kids it's also my parents it's also like yeah yeah it's like everywhere you look everything's got a little fire burning and yeah you're just trying to where is calm where is safety when the whole picture is just burning yes yeah there must be something in my life that's not on fire yes yeah and you know making the wrong move Mm -hmm. to start that process of healing is almost necessary expect it's yeah. totally understandable. Mm-hmm, so when mm-hmm. someone shows up and is like, I think I should have done it a different way. Like, that's fine. But everything was on fire. Mm-hmm. You did the best you could. Exactly. That's one of the biggest things I always try to hold on to is we're always doing the best that we could with the tools and resources that we had at the time, right? Yeah. If you're willing to share more, I'd love to hear about where you were at in your 30s. What was going on that, yeah, felt like. Everywhere you looked, there was chaos. (laughs) Um, It's probably easiest to talk about my career path. Okay, yeah. I was in the human resources field, and I was doing administrative work for a nonprofit agency. And I really loved the agency. I really loved the mission. And it was a situation where nonprofits are great. They're great spaces to try things out. And we will take someone who is really enthusiastic but not very experienced Mm -hmm. and say, hey, do you want to give this a shot? Like, we just need someone to do this work for a few weeks or a few months. Like, try it out. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And it was great. I got to to get my feet wet in health education and I got to get my feet wet in professional training. And then the organization kind of hit a crisis point and they were like, we need someone to do payroll. like. Well, I've never tried that. How hard could it be? Right, right <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, and then fast forward a few years and I have uh, I get some professional training under my belt, but never get to the point where I woke up in the morning and I'm like, I'm really excited about this work that I'm doing. I'm really good at it mm-hmm. because I was not really good at it. Mm. I was mostly competent in a good year, Sure, but there was also a lot of tension because I'm 
I am at heart a therapist and at heart really talk about emotions and understand emotions. And so I was hearing this language that nobody else was hearing in the room. And it was incredibly frustrating because I would try to point to it and people would say, like, I don't know what you're talking about. I can't mm. hear that. It was a real destabilizing experience. And so yeah. I had to come to that process really slowly then. I wasn't really built for the work that I was doing. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. And I was incredibly lucky that I had enough freedom, enough privilege that I could shift course. Yeah. But it was messy because I kept solving it by saying, I'm going to go to another job and that will help. Oh. And I had okay. to go through three or four jobs. Yeah. Until I looked around and like, none of that helped. Yeah. So at that time when you were starting to notice the difference in the language, right, the emotions, the therapist being a part of your heart, right, did you know that you wanted to be a therapist at that time and you were just ignoring that inner thought or was it just an uncomfortability with the language? Like, yeah, what was your level of insight to where you Mm -hmm. should be going? Were you ignoring the call of God? You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) I had no insight. Okay. Um, The last time – I had thought to myself I wanted to be a therapist. I was maybe 19 or 20. Okay. And I was in college and a psychology major. So, of course, like that's what people do. They study psychologists and then they go be therapists. Um, And my advisor was really thinking about a clinical PhD route. And she said, you know, that's difficult. That's a lot of years of school. This is a thing that is very competitive and the zone that you're trying to work in. So let's think about the parts of this that look good. And really what she was trying to tell me was to get more well-rounded. And that was really useful advice Mm. to hear. But because I was a young adult and because I was doing some very black and white thinking, I immediately fell back into something Mm. else. I'm like, okay, maybe... Maybe I just do research and I learned about statistics and databases and it was great. And those were very marketable skills, but they were not counseling mm. and they were not therapy. And I just stopped paying attention to it. So the next time I thought to myself, I wanted to be a therapist, I was 37. Wow. And immediately said to myself, that's not a thing I can do anymore because I can't go back to school. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe that mentor, that professor was was trying to give you the context of like, yeah, this is a whole well-rounded thing. Maybe you could get experience here and, you know, outside world experience rather than the PhD. But that sort of messaging at the time where you were at kind of maybe it sounds like scared you away from the path. Is that, is that like, yeah, what, what kind of made that? Because it sounds like you said black and white thinking. That's why I was kind of curious. What was that? It was um, not so much a fear. Okay. Yeah. But I think that I really just saw one path forward. Mm. And that path, because this was academia and because I was talking to someone who had done, had lived her life inside of a university setting. Yep. The only way that she saw in between me and being a therapist was clinical. PhD mm, program mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. involving four or five more years of school. And to yeah. place that on a 20-year-old 
doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. And when I found out that there were licensed professional counselors, I'm like, what do you mean? They just let people do this without five years of school? And so it was interesting. She had a limitation about what being a therapist would look like. I had a limitation about what being a therapist would look like. And those two things just didn't end up playing well with each other. Mm. And also, I think she was trying to give me the very good insight, like good therapy involves life experience. And I didn't have a lot of that yet. Mm. And you can't really do this well until you have both the clinical training and also something to hang all of that information on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that PhD route didn't feel like it was something you wanted and she didn't offer you the alternatives of, yeah, masters and other ways that you could be doing the same work because for her path, you know, she's, yeah, exactly in academia. So this is what she sees. This is what she's going to share. But there's a multiplicity of different routes that you could have got to that same path. So then, okay, so you're coming out of college, you hear this, at that point, you you go away into other career paths, yeah? Because, I mean, you said at 37 is when you think about it. So there's like a good like amount of time in, in between those two points. There's a really interesting life story there. And yeah. also, I look back, I'm like, what was, what was I thinking now? I lock in again to this very easy story. Like, I am a therapist and it took me a little while to get there. Yeah. And there's also this whole other person that happened in between those two points. Mm. So we get to be a whole lot of people. And uh, and that young person did a lot of really hard work. And now I am here. And sometimes it feels like two different people. Yeah. What are, what are those two different people? If you could paint the picture of the two of them. Mm. Nicole, honestly, I don't think I can. Mm. <laughs> Interesting, and, and we will yeah. we will get there in a few years. But when I finally ended that relationship that I was in through my twenties and early thirties, real interest in disconnection, where I couldn't get any insight into who I was or what I had done mm. over those past few years, and it's neat. I was able to really integrate that in a cool way just over the last year or so, and being able to reconnect with that other person did a lot of work towards healing Mm. that break. But on a larger scale, I think I'm still really settling into this life versus my past life. And Mm. it's hard to, uh, it's hard to make that connection. I know there's a right answer there. I don't know what it is. Well, yeah, we don't have to know, but I think it's so important to sit with that, that distinction though, that past life. That's a strong word. It, it, that language is almost sort of calling a divide between your sense of living, right? Like you have life now and that was a whole different life. And I just like to sit in that that moment and that language that I don't I don't know what the difference was, but for me thinking about it, when I think about that language and how I conceptualize my own life, it reminds me of the difference between like living authentically and finding my voice and what resonated with me and what didn't and kind of like staying in that. So that is what that language brings up for me. So that's why I'm just curious how that sits with you of like, yeah, what were those two spaces? Yes. In those two spaces, one is very much more authentically me or the way I experience myself right now. Yeah. And hello from the past. I might look at this five years or 10 years down the road and say, oh, honey, 
all these things you didn't know. Um, <laughs> sure. So that, that process of developing greater and greater and greater authenticity mm-hmm. is really, I think, inevitable for a lot of us. And some folks have this nice, steady curve where they learn a little bit, grow a little bit, become a little bit more authentic. But most of us, I think, have really big shifts and plateaus like growth spurts. Sure. Yep. And going from one level to another is is hard work. Yeah, 100%. And I feel like one of the big things that also shapes that is your environment, right? Mm-hmm. At, at least from my own experience, I've found that depending on who is around you, it can really shift what you're doing with your life, how you see the world, you go into maybe a more like toxic work environment. You're surrounded by a lot of people with this different mentality. I think because of our social beings, we want to fit in with the herd, you know, mind mentality. Some of that can actually like change how you grow and maybe like, yeah, go back into other modes where it doesn't feel safe to be authentic or other things. And it really depends on like the context. Some of it's not even ourselves sometimes, right? Sometimes I feel like it's also where we're at and what's surrounding us. Indeed. Yeah. That process of conforming and being able to read the room and figure out what's acceptable or not, those are really valuable survival skills. Yeah. And the more stress and the more challenge we go through early in our lives, like we get very, very good at that. Mm -hmm. And those are things that for some people they have to perform for the rest of their life. Yep. But when you can set that down, it just feels so good that all yeah. of a sudden you keep chasing it. Yeah. I feel like in my own life, that's something I've really noticed it noticed as a queer woman going into spaces where I feel safe to be myself versus spaces mm-hmm. where I feel like I have to kind of gatekeep what I say, knowing that I, you know, the other person might not take it in a way that's safe for me to just exist and show up. Exactly. Yeah. It's like running into a group of people who have seen your favorite movie and yeah. all of a sudden there are shared experiences, things you can say, things you can do yep. and not have to translate yourself. Yes. It feels amazing. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And sometimes that's why this podcast for me has been so beautiful personally, right? Because as someone who practices polyamory, is queer. Sometimes in the world, I don't get to have levels of conversation with people about these things without like translating just, oh, this is what polyamory means, right? And those are beautiful conversations, but just the level of like maybe teaching versus getting to have a shared conversation with someone has been so profound, I think, for for me personally and my identity and feeling safe. I've created like a container here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Oh, well, that's challenging with queerness and polyamory, I think, particularly yeah. because so often it feels a little bit unsafe to be the first person to raise those topics. And when I work with clients, very often they have done work individually around themselves, around their identities. And one of the next stages is to connect with other folks who have shared these experiences and then start learning from each other. And then take some notes and then just enjoy the fact that you have someone who, who gets your jokes, who knows those lines. And that's incredibly frightening. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And sometimes 
you can only know if it's a safe space by maybe like dipping your toe in the water and then you feel that water is really cold, right? And then you're like, oh, I'm going to retract that back. And I think that's like, yeah, that process exactly what makes it scary is you kind of don't know until you're vulnerable and put some things out there and see how that lands. Obviously, there's other ways to kind of like gauge, but in in the honor of not making assumptions, you know, you kind of have to dip out to see how you're received. Otherwise, you're making assumptions about how other people are going to perceive you. Yeah. It really puts in a different light. The experience I had when I was younger was in a relatively normative suburban environment. Sometimes people would look around and say, why do we keep talking about these things? Why do we keep talking about race? Why do we keep talking about sexuality why do we keep talking about gender like what's what's so important about these topics that we have to raise them all the time and there are a few members of the community who are really relentlessly raising the questions over and over and over in order to signal that they're safe people to talk to Mm. and we're doing that as like bird calls so that we can find each other and it's audible to other folks outside of the community, but without really that context, mm. without without them understanding, we need community and we need to be able to answer these questions for ourselves, and we need to know where it's safe to ask questions and where it's not safe to ask questions. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's. I love that language you used of a bird call, right? You like you put it out there and then that way you know that these are the people that you feel safe enough to have these conversations with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the young people in my life is really into wolves uh-huh. and is fascinated by that idea that you know, like wolves will howl and you know carry mm. this message across long distances. And for a while that uh, manifested in them randomly howling every once in a while like if I were a wolf I would have something to say right now sure (laughs) hello (laughs) it was was delightful yeah and that sense of signaling to somebody else Mm. is huge and we do that all the time we do that with the books that we read on the train or the music coming out of our car windows or the clothes that we wear all of these signals exist all the time yeah that's very true I've I've thought about that in in smaller things like um like even having long hair. I know that's like something that's talked about within the queer community where it's like, oh, like I'd want to shave my head to have this sort of like signal to the world that oh, I'm a queer person. But obviously recognizing that like there there is no like definition of how you have to look as a queer person. So I, I keep my long hair because I like it, but it's definitely one of those things where you like, how do I signal to the world who I am in a way so that I bird call, I wool, you know, I howl out to the world that this is who I am um, and meet more people, but still stay true to myself. It's, it's a dance. It's a dance. Yeah. And we're doing that dance differently when more of our life is virtual. Oh, yeah. Which is interesting to me as someone who has never really been about clothes or about body appearance. I'm like, yeah. what do you mean I have to put fabric on my body every day? And some of these items are gendered and some of them are not. And yes. some of them signal what it's like, uh, what is this? I know. So, I agree. <laughs> so being able to be online and 
not necessarily make those choices is fabulous. Mm -hmm. When we talk to each other in podcast land, you don't know what I look like. And I think that's great. Yes. But for other people, it really strips them of their their identity. Yep. They're like, hang on, let me send you a bio pic. Yeah. Change my profile picture. Let me put a ribbon around it so everybody knows that I am into mental health awareness, Mm -hmm. which is is really delightful when you watch it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was thinking about that recently about the podcast being almost kind of like a love is blind space, you know, the Netflix, like here it is, like, because it's not a video podcast or I don't have that, you know, unless someone does the extra work of checking, you know, the guests social media or other things, then yeah, you don't know what they look like. And so you're actually just hearing their voice, hearing their intonations, hearing the way they speak and what they're passionate about rather than making these assumptions based on, yeah, what they might look like in the schemas that that would bring up for someone. Exactly. And I think that's a powerful way to connect with people. How can we let down our guards of things that would say like, this is what this means and this is what that means and actually just connect with the voice and hear people. I think that's a powerful medium. Sure. And it's unavoidable that people will pick up signals about us. Right. Based on the information that we know. You can make assumptions about me based on my name, based on the tone of my voice. And yep. and there's no way to turn that off. There's no way to stop that. Lots of folks, when they're wrestling with questions around gender, it's like falling down a rabbit hole because all of a sudden everything means something yes it does and it's possible to dwell for ages on on what does this hair say about me what does this particular outfit say about me yeah i can walk around in the world and maybe i can pass pretty well as the person i want to be unless i open my mouth mm-hmm. and then we'll do some voice training or then we'll do some hormone therapy and then we'll like try to try to control those signals that we're putting out in yes. the world And people will always continue wanting to know who Mm. we are and wanting to sometimes make assumptions about who we are. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is bringing up for me. I was in a class recently where they were talking about OCD and people having like non-heterosexual thoughts and OCD getting obsessive compulsive about it. Oh, interesting. Yes, right? Um, And it was an interesting thought because the case example, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. The case example was someone who went on a cruise and saw a – it was a male that saw another male that was attractive and that thought brought up a lot for them and they wondered, oh, am I gay? And this caused them to spiral into a lot of obsessions over it and they ended up having to leave the cruise early. So like it created so much significant distress that they left and um, it was a CBT class, right? So my professor was saying like, oh, like the intrusive thought was that the man is attractive. And I kind of asked like, why do we label that as the intrusive thought? And she said, well, because in the past he's never had any thoughts about men. He's never dated any men at all. And so like clearly it's not, you know, it's something that he's obsessing over, which brought up a lot for me to be like, well, you, you could be fluid and have this come up and you don't have to have had previous experience having homosexual attraction or homosexual relationships for this to be a meaningful thing. But it did bring up a lot for me about this question of like, how much is it normal, right, to think about all of these things 
versus like, when does it become distressing when you're like, yeah, what does my hair mean about me? Am, am I bi, lesbian, straight? Like all these sorts of things. And it brought up a really interesting class discussion. I think about like, what is a distressing level of questioning what these signals mean versus like living and enjoying the freedom of these signals? Yes. Yeah. I was like, wow. Well, I think that bigger question is how much authenticity is allowed Mm. because it's so hard to separate these questions from our expectations for ourselves. Yeah. And when we're acting in ways that we don't expect, if I, as a very good sleeper, if I have a whole night of insomnia, then I will show up and ask my doctor, ask my therapist, like ask my family, like, what does it mean? And that search for meaning is like really the distress or not distressing. If that person had made it all the way into my office, I would say, okay, you were attracted to this man. He was hot. You want to tell me more about that? Or yes. are there other important things in your life? Yes. But there are so many steps of awareness that come in between here and there that, yes. that are hurt for people. I think this was a really hard point for me in class because no one said that. And I was the one who oh asked that question of literally like, is this society not letting this person feel safe enough to embrace that mm-hmm. versus the question of like, oh, they're they're straight. That's kind of how the case example wrapped up was like, oh, they were straight and now they have no problems with this and sort of thing versus like, let's embrace that like having attraction towards the man is not the intrusive thought if we're going to get CBT about it, right? Like the intrusive thought is like, what does that mean about my life? And then this and all of those sorts of things like. Sure. Yeah. And that was really hard for me because I was the only one who brought this up. And I was just like, as a queer person, this is bringing a lot for me that like, I would want to see this client and be like, yes, you have this and that's great. Let's talk about what this means to you. And let's bring some of the established research on sexual attraction and the fluidity of sexual attraction and recognize that you had this thought, which is a little bit outside the norm for you. Yes. Maybe your brain was trying a thing and then you go on with your life mm-hmm. or you decide to ask for his number. Either yeah. way is fine. Yes. And I know. I don't want to minimize the, the distress that this is, that is going on for people every single day because it's hard if this is the first time you're wrestling with these issues and you're talking about your mm-hmm. own self and your own future, then, then yeah, of course it's distressing. Exactly. Throw you off your game. Of course, you might not feel like being on vacation, and this idea that on vacation you are supposed to have no internal questions, just enjoy yourself, is uh, also a little weird to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I a hundred percent agree with you. This this is exactly my point right there. Right, like. I don't know. From my own experience, it brought up a lot of questions without a lot of answers, which is naturally distressing, right? And that's what I hope this conversation can maybe create a little bit of space for is like the questioning process of these larger pieces and the symbols, right? And how we, which ones we want to choose, we want to pick up and what it means in society. Like that's a lot of flux to be navigating through that is naturally distressing. Well, flux is really distressing. And yeah. now I'm I'm curious and I would love to ask you questions about your coming out experience. Oh yeah, because, hell yeah. Yeah. Because there is a cultural mindset that we've got right now when we have 
teenagers coming out at very young ages as as bisexual, queer, gay, lesbian, we assume that sexuality is fixed across very long lifetimes mm-hmm. and that these are things that you're supposed to know when you're 12, 14, 16 yes. years old. That wasn't my experience. Right. I'm wondering if it was your experience. No, it was not. Yeah, no. And there's such a big zone of knowing but not knowing. Mm -hmm. So what was that like for you? Yeah, I think for me, my context was that I was in a religious setting where I was raised Christian and I believed it and that was my life. So what that meant was that whenever any sort of inkling arise for a homosexual attraction, I coded that as sin, wrong, not something, something that you work on, right? And I don't think I had that sort of language at the time, but I would watch movies and certain things like you'd just like naturally respond to scenes or other things and then be like, oh, that's bad. And so I think it just kind of like really pushed it down so much so until I was out of college out of my parents in a different part of the world where I could kind of say like, oh, I can try on things and not have to have that community scream back at me that you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And once that environment shifted, I felt more safe to play and to try and to just experiment. But even as I started to do that and the first time I hooked up with a woman, it was amazing and I knew there was something there. But then that asked the bigger question of, was I authentically me in the past? Do I like men at all? Do I like non Like what is – who you know? And then you try to – for me, I try to like maybe I'm a lesbian. Maybe I'm this. Maybe I'm that and try to put myself in boxes. But ultimately, I've come to this space where I'm like I'm just queer. It's people. I don't know. You know, some, some person – some people do it. Some people don't. I don't really look at the gender sort of thing, which gives me the fluidity that I love. But like, yeah, there was so much grappling with it. This box feels safe. This box no longer, you know. I'm like Goldilocks with the beds, you know. <laughs> like this one feels too small. <laughs> and sometimes the box feels just right. At yes. The time and then feels too small later. Yes. 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 That's true for so many people in so many ways. Yes. That was yes. my career experience. It was just right, and then it wasn't. Yes. So why wouldn't we feel that way about sexuality or gender or anything else in our life? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious. Yeah. What was your experience? Was it anything similar to that? You know, I wouldn't, I would identify as bisexual for this simple reason that that was the term that I knew when I started asking myself these questions. Mm -hmm. Um, But that wasn't a realization that I came to very early in my life. And one of the cool things about the pandemic and staying indoors is that I ended up watching a lot of old TV that I hadn't really touched for mm-hmm. 20 years. Yeah. And so watching the the shows of my childhood and realizing I absolutely had a crush on that actress. Yes. How did I not know that? Yes. How did I not know that that was sexual mm-hmm. or romantic? Like, that's so weird. Just because it wasn't really a language that I had at the time. Yeah, I knew straight people. They grew up. They got married. They took each other's names. Easy peasy. Mm-hmm. And so because that wasn't unattractive to me, because I didn't see anything inherently wrong or damaging about that to me, I was like, oh, I too am straight. I too will grow up, get married to someone of the other gender, and change my name. It'll be fantastic. This will work well for me. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
And it was more complex than that. Yeah, it always is, isn't it? But I feel like your your example is is hitting on something for me that rings so true is the representation of media because as people living this world, I think we look to other narratives to kind of conceptualize our future and where we're going because it is this really big black box that could be anything with our lives, right? And so we see on movies, oh, this is how it plays out. Yeah, you change your last name, you have the kids, you live the life, that's what you do. And so then when we think about something that is unknown, our future will project from based on the other narratives that we've seen this is where I'm going to go. And so if you're growing up in an environment that doesn't have a lot of narratives to even give you choice of future, then I I think it gets increasingly harder to see what your life would look like when there's no examples. Indeed. Yeah. And when we have a range of examples, sometimes it's overwhelming. For yes. Oh my God. Because yeah. we really crave that structure. When I was an uh, undergraduate, I really needed someone to tell me you have three or four career choices. This is what they are. Mm-hmm. Please choose from this short menu. Yep. If you had tried to give me a list of all of the potential roles in the mental health field, yeah, I would have gotten totally lost. Yep. It's like the uh, analysis paralysis, right? It's like mm-hmm. it's the reason why we enjoy a smaller grocery store than something like Walmart where you walk in and you can have aisles and aisles of different choices and we sit there for, you know, stand there for a minute wondering which pasta sauce is the right sauce out of like 20 different kinds and you're just like, ah, I can't choose any now because there's too many. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's everything is gray, right? Like the joy of like so many options and then the equal existential dread of so many options. I feel like nothing ever comes in this like clear, like it's great. It's always like, it's great and scary. You know what I mean? Like that's mm-hmm. life in a nutshell. I read that book, The Paradox of Choice. Ooh, I should write that down. Ago. It's a little bit older. I think it was from, uh, from like the early teens, uh, but it, illustrated really well the difficulty in having too many choices and what happens to us after we make the choice. If we see that there are 87 choices, we're much less likely to be satisfied with the one that we got. Yep. And if we see that there are only three choices, then we can know for sure that we chose the best out of those three. Mm-hmm. We're very, very satisfied with our decision. We pat ourselves on the back. Yep. It's great. Yes. I have this like postcard post it right behind the computer that says anxiety is the dizziness of freedom and that's from Kierkegaard. Yeah, I know. Kierkegaard, if you understand. Yeah, the famous like theologian <laughs> and he was also a really big existentialist thinker that yeah, it's dizziness or anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of our like ex- existential realities that we have to face and it it makes me think a lot more about the concepts of dating within our current context because right exactly when you have 87 choices especially somewhere like chicago you know dating apps you have way more than 87 choices and how do you sit and say i made the right choice whether that be with one person two three four whatever you know amount of relationships feels accurate for you like how do you even in that feel like you made the right choice out of an abundance of opportunity I'm not sure there is a way to do it. And I'm not sure that a pool that big leads to a lot of satisfaction for any individual person. Mm. 
which mm-hmm. is heartbreaking because everybody wants to go find their person, find their people, be satisfied, solve it, yeah, and then get on to the other major life events that they're tackling. Mm-hmm. But also it opens so many possibilities that we wouldn't have if we were artificially constraining our choices. If I know that there are 87 choices out there and you only gave me three, I'm going to be really salty about Mm -hmm. it. And I think, in my opinion, this is the dilemma and absolute beauty of modern society at its core, right? Like, depending on what access you have and other things, there's a plethora of world that you could explore, but even in our limited lifetime, you couldn't flip over every stone. I I remember being really young and just wanting to read all of the classic literature. I was an English major and I was like, I'm going to read all of the classics. Yeah. And then kind of really defining like what that means and hitting this point where I was like, I cannot read every book, you know, in the world and there would be too many. And you can't see every beautiful point of this earth probably even because there's too many. And if you really spent the time looking at all of that stuff and I feel like part of the internet too is giving us that like there is a plethora of information out there that you could never stop digging into. And it's like I feel like our modern society is reaching this point where we're like when we know there is no end to our options, how do we find the mindfulness to be grateful for like right here what's in front of us and being content with the world that we have I don't know. That's that, This is my feeling like of how the internet and our globalization is kind of shifting how we see everything. Like there is no end to what we want and could access given levels of privilege and just diff- various things. And we have a lot at our fingertips that humanity has never had. Mm-hmm. We are turning into a different kind of creature. Yes. Collectively. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. We're not really programmed to say, no, thank you. I would not like to know about that choice. We're curious and the curiosity is such a strength and it also gets us in so much trouble every day of our lives. I feel this really keenly sitting in the library, knowing I am surrounded by more books than I could physically read. Yes, (laughs) exactly. And then how do you confront that? Where do you find contentment? I think it's almost like kind of where's your vision at, right? Like, is your vision at like the right now, what I have here? Or is your vision at, I'm almost done with this book. So now I want to go and read these, these, and these books, but God, I don't have enough time to read all these books. And then you're like projecting out that way rather than like, oh, I'm still finishing the last couple chapters here. You know what I mean? Like, where's your vision at? Mm -hmm. I find a really uh, stark divide between the people who will assemble books and dabble and say, I read a couple chapters of that Mm. versus the people who are completionist and will really need to scrape their eyes over every line of a book that they say that they've read. Yeah, Because it's, I think, much more effective to, when you know something isn't working, to go ahead and let it go. Mm. But that fear of what, what if I missed something? in the last couple of chapters that can, yeah. that can really mess people up. Say more because I see all the analogies to life and I'm, I'm thinking my wheels are spinning. So I'm curious person, yeah. since your theory, like let's de- develop this. Where What do you see the difference are? Well, the book finishers, we can be authoritative and we can find things that 
we weren't necessarily looking for. So we get surprised on our side. And the book hoppers ultimately get to read a lot more books. And we get to put those books in conversation with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I'm hearing is like this different difference between the person who finishes the whole book because that's the how you read a book. You can't say you read a book if you didn't finish the whole thing. So I'm going to stick to that duty base, like going to do it versus I read a few chapters. It didn't really sit with me. I didn't really get into the flow of it and really like it. So I'm going to go read another book that's going to give me that oomph, that vitality, that enjoyment that I'm hoping to find something like reading or the knowledge, whatever that is. And like, yeah, those are two different ways of looking at the hobby enjoyment of reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we do that with our life choices as well. And there's a lot of, I'm going to take the unpopular side. I think there's a lot to be said for sticking with and finishing a book. Hell yeah. That you weren't sure was going to give you any new information. There's a lot to be said for sticking with a training, for sometimes sticking with a relationship that is not immediately gratifying, but you think there might be something else or you think that it's not played out Mm -hmm. because that opens us up to new categories of experience rather than just following the experiences that we thought we wanted or that we want on a surface level. So there's something really powerful in that tension of being in a place you don't want to be. Exactly. And writing it out. I agree. But this is the tricky thing then because when do you decide to leave? Mm -hmm. When do you feel like I'm continuing to read this book? I'm not getting much out of this book. It's just frustrating. You know, whatever that is. I don't think there's a right answer there. I know. know. That's what I tell people all the time. I was like, unfortunately, there's no right answer. It's like, do you choose curtain two or curtain three? They've got different life paths. They're going to go in different directions. This is a fork in the road. This is a fork in the road. And we cannot see the ending of either path. But you're going to have to make a choice. That's a whole lot easier to do with someone else's choices than it is with our own choices. Mm, Yeah, same more. I can sit with a client who is looking at curtain two or curtain three and say, well, you will want to choose one in order to be satisfied with what's to come. You might choose wrong and choosing wrong is okay. Mm -hmm. And I also know that choosing wrong isn't typically final, that there are often lots of ways to adjust. Mm -hmm. But when it is my life, There is obviously one right answer and one wrong answer, and I cannot solve this without a crystal ball. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I know know that analysis paralysis so well. Yeah, And I have so much empathy for someone trying to make the choice. It's, for me, the valuable thing is to have someone in the room who can see it objectively. Yeah. Like, one of these might be better. Yeah. You don't know which one might be better. And it's hard. That's a hard person only having one life. Yeah. And I feel like your story, you know, even with just your career, kind of points to this, right? You you went through different jobs, different things, but all along the way, even though you might have took different curtains, it kind of got you to the therapist heart, right? I'm Whatever path of the universe, whatever path you were going on, it, you know, it might have whispered to you and then maybe 
you know, slapped you a little on the face and then threw a brick and like, and then maybe dropped a wall if you're not listening, you know, like it kind of guided you in some way. You know what I mean? That like, even though you didn't take the direct path straight to a master's and, you know, you still kind of took all these different paths that brought you to the right place for you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And a lot of what I, a lot of what makes me good as a therapist now is based on the life experiences that I had, even though I was in places that if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have chosen. Sure. Um, I did several years as a sexual health educator, mm -hmm. which was phenomenally fun yes. for the first part. And for the second part, it let me learn how to talk about a topic that most people feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about. Yep. And so when I'm in a therapy room, when I'm out in the world, I can pick up someone else's language mm. and help them be comfortable with the things that they're saying. Yeah. And that's not a skill I learned in my social work program. Right. And it's not a skill that comes preloaded. Lots of what we think of as our personal failings really are just a lack of practice or a lack of skill in a particular area. So there's mm -hmm. nothing magic about me. It's just that I had this life experience. It didn't ultimately ever lead to a livable salary, and that's too bad, but it gave me so much. Yes, yes. There's so much beauty in the compassion that you have for yourself at those times as you get more tools to look back on yourself and say, why did I respond the way I did? But to still have this overarching level of compassion for yourself, I think that's what helps clinicians be able to then give that compassion out to other people because you've already met yourself with that. And so, you know, that's just part of the reality is how you see yourself shows up in any sort of dynamic with other people. And I think your ability and awareness to hold your own experience, to hold that own level of compassion means that you don't get triggered, you know, when other people are bringing that up in the room. So then you're able to just give out that compassion freely. And that's the beauty of the life experience, right? Like, oh, that's what makes, yeah, exactly a beautiful clinician, you know, having that ability to love themselves. Being able to meet yourself is really the big task that lots of us are working on in all different ways, all phases of our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to be mindful of our time. Do you feel like there's anything that on your heart maybe we didn't talk about, that we didn't hit, that you really wanted to speak on? I always like to hold a little bit of space before I close with a question. I feel like this has been lovely and totally unexpected. I came in honestly not knowing what I was going to talk about today. Good. And Good. I'm interested to see how you shape it and what you do with it. Oh, it's it's all. This is it. There's no there's no crazy <laughs> editing from the very there's beginning. No. Uh, no. no. It just I think goes that, and goes. That's the an this is my like anarchy of it, right? And I think this is also the beauty of a shared collaboration. Like this is a sort of conversation that I could have never had with anybody else right? Because it's your brain and my brain and we're just bouncing off ideas off of other people, which makes it inherently always unique. And I love that. Fat cat. She's like, we've had enough at the recording. It's my time, mom. Exactly. I know. Can we, we take a moment off. and talk about the cat? I know. Yeah. She just keeps, yeah, of course. adorable. 
<laughs> That's Fat Cat. She. This is her house. I just live here. She, she walks across when it's her time. <laughs> That's a yeah. beautiful thing. I know. Yeah, I love her dearly. She's such a connection to the present moment every time. So I, I surrender to her frequently and <laughs> mm-hmm. pet her and console her. She is the one in charge. Yes, exactly. You get it. Yeah. So then the last closing question that I ask everyone And I know you might disagree with the question, but what is one thing that you wish other people knew was normal? Mm -hmm. I think I prefaced it with you might disagree because I remember you at the very beginning saying nothing is normal, so which is also a fair response. And I agree with that answer. (laughs) I think for me, I wish more people knew that it was normal to not know what you're doing. And this sense of certainty that we create for other people. Sometimes we create that for colleagues or family members to help each other feel comfortable, but that inner sense of not knowing is actually really common and it may be uncomfortable, but we're not alone in it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We're always just trying to do our best, figure it out with the best tools and knowledge we got to predict that that future, which is really unseeable right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That's my thing. Yeah. And I feel like that's exactly something that we've touched on throughout our conversation and and throughout your own journey. And yeah, how do we get a little bit more comfortable with the uncomfortability of the future, change, just life, chaos, all of those sorts of things? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was just a pleasure to get to bounce off ideas with you. And I, I feel so like co-regulated with your, your calmness. You bring such like a peace where I was like constantly vibing back to your energy of like serenity is just kind of what I was picking up from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it helps that I'm in a really serene place. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. I love her. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're a part of the Anarchist community, then follow us on Instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modernanarchypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.